Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Hello and welcome to another episode of TV Show and Tell, your draft from the font of TV knowledge. My name is David Bodicum. I'm a producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, and I'm known internationally as the Format Doctor. And our guest today is Stuart Holdham, arguably the UK's leading warm-up artist, the person who keeps the audience entertained during a studio recording. Stick around for that because it's a very entertaining chat with some useful insights to boot. We'll also be looking at utilising multi-channel capabilities when launching new shows and explain what the heck showing the plumbing is. So it's been a bit of a funny time here in the UK because Channel 4 have said that they're now not looking to commission anything till 2025. So is there actually anything going on in the world of television, Justin? Well, uh, <laughs> not in the UK, not very much. Naked Attraction, which is a Channel 4 show, as we know, the, has hit America. So all six current seasons landed on HBO Max or Max last month. Um, and given, you know, the Americans' attitudes to nudity as opposed to guns, uh, it's caused lots of controversy. However, it's also topped the most watch list <laughs> for two weeks, which suggests that all those blobby, all that, all that blurring out um, has missed a trick. <laughs> I'm outraged by this. I must watch more of it. Yes. Well, it was described by one um, conservative pundit as the, so this is a, a thing I presumably about, about Britain. The natural outcome of a hedonistic society where the only thing that matters is the sex instinct. Uh, So there you go, which is quite funny. This is from the country that gave us Game of Thrones. (laughs) This is true. So there's not much more more to say about that. The only fun fact that I picked up in the course of uh, reading about that was that you compare that to Naked and Afraid, which is a discovery show where you have two strangers who are survivalists who try to survive for a long period of time in the wilderness, and they're both naked. But of course, being typically American, they then blur out all the uh, all the naughty bits. And apparently, it takes a team of people 50 hours an episode <laughs> to blur out all the bits. <laughs> So can you just can you just imagine like I want to do a, 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 an item one day about jobs that you didn't know that exist in the exactly. TV industry. Yeah. It's like, what's your job? Well, actually, I I pixelate out people's naughty bits on television. I think it's something that somebody should off should um, ask their careers officer at school about. Really, <laughs> um, frankly, because it's uh, you're quite right. It's 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 a very weird job. But just think of, think of the economic case for saying, listen, if you want to make this show, Naked Afraid, if you want to cut the budget, you know, just go down the Naked Attraction route. It's as simple as that. So back in the day, there was a very, very successful Spanish television game show called Un Dos Tres, which ran, I think, between about 72 and 2004 and something like that. But it used to get enormous 
figures like 25 million viewers which is which apparently is 65 percent of the spanish audience of the spanish tv population at the time wow Anyway, there uh, is one of the internet's most recognisable faces is a guy called Gref G, um, actually called David Martinez. Um, he's 26, he's Spanish. He has 10.2 million followers on Twitch, which makes him one of the platform's sixth most followed persons. Ah, okay. Anyway, uh, he loves this old game show, and he's decided to, to reboot it on Twitch. Wow. I mean, there's going to be a tipping point, isn't there, oh. when this sort of thing is going to be doable uh, and the bigger names are going to be the first people that have the budget possible. But if it's on Twitch, it's obviously not going to be particularly edited. It can just run to the length of the slot that they want it to do, uh, which can be quite useful for mm. a game show like uh, like that. But yeah, that's, that's very interesting. It was a show that was called 321 for some reason in, in the... UK. Oh, really? Well, that, That's the same as and this is the same as three, two, one with Dusty Bear. Yes. Oh, yes. Right. I, you know, God, I suppose because the numbers were the other way around, I just hadn't quite realised <laughs> that. You know. Yeah, because at the start <laughs> of every single episode uh, in the credits, it said based on Undostres by Ibanez Serrador. That, ah. that name is burnt into my brain from when I was a child. And uh, it's more logical uh, to call it three, two, one because it was three couples, then two couples, and one couple at the end who would right. pick the prize. Right. So uh, maybe that's why they changed it. But um... oh, right. Okay. Well, um, but that's a very. I mean, it was a very kind of people noisy studio based show, wasn't it? Really. Uh, I mean, I can't even remember what the game was. But well, the first part of the game was like a, a, a quick quiz. The second part was more of like a. Um, physical task, and the, the the one at the end was the infamous one, where you had to use cryptic clues to work out a prize, which is something that's probably ungoogleable and therefore works quite well as a hmm. as a Twitch thing. Uh, how you did the middle section, I don't know, but presumably they have uh, plans for it. Great. Oh well, watch out for the Gref G. Let's see what they do. <laughs> Here's a weird piece of news. First of all, did you know that Netflix actually started out as a DVD mailing service? I did do that, yes. Okay. Because wasn't it something to do with the fact that the guy didn't was fed up of paying late fees? Uh, he just hated that that concept, so that's how he set it up, okay. I think. And when do you think that ended? Oh, okay. Well... I mean, I physically haven't used any DVDs in probably the last seven years, so I would think it'd be something like 2016. Well, it's ending on Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Unbelievably, this has still been going um, all of these years. I think it has, at its peak, it had millions and millions of um, subscribers, and now there's less than a million. So, they're finally wrapping it up on Friday. And what's so sweet about it is that the, the people who are still subscribing will be allowed to keep the DVDs that they've got. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Because <laughs> what, what else are they going to do with them? <laughs> so, you know, they, 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 they're going to be able to keep their things. Uh, does that mean I can ring up Netflix and say, you know, before Friday, can you, <laughs> can you, can you burn the Queen's Gambit on DVD for me? Or? <laughs>
If you've ever been to an entertainment recording in the UK, there's a very good chance you'll have come across our guest today, Stuart Holdham. Stuart's main work is as a warm-up artist, the person who settles down the audience before recording begins and keeps them entertained during any filming hold-ups. He's also a very versatile entertainer and compare, having hosted corporate functions, public ceremonies and charity events. Let's hear from him now. So our guest today um, is a star of The Chase, Strictly Come Dancing, Britain's Got Talent, The Masked Singer, The Voice, Dancing on Ice, The Greatest Dancer, The Jonathan Ross Show, Love Island, Catchphrase, The X Factor, I could go on. But you may not have heard of him. And the reason you haven't heard of him, perhaps, is because he is the warm-up artist on all of those shows, which is a crucial job that we're going to hear all about right now. So welcome, Stu Holdham. Welcome, welcome to, to you guys as well. It's lovely to meet you. I love the way that you say uh, you might not have heard of him. I don't think anyone has heard of me, <laughs> which, is, which is why I haven't got many followers on Instagram, but it's totally fine. Um, I would like to think I am... I, could you? Can I say without sounding too... Uh, I don't know... With, unsung hero of tv i think that's brilliant yes let's throw that one in there yeah, yeah okay uh, i will say unsung hero because you absolutely are it, briefly what does a warm-up artist do um, when you have television recordings that obviously have an audience it's not as you see it on tv it's very much stop start stop start and you need to kind of keep that audience motivated somehow and entertained you know that's not only before the record but obviously during it as well especially if it's a, a show uh, on a commercial channel with with commercial breaks so we will then go back in there entertain the audience uh, it's not all about telling jokes. It's about having fun and games with the audience as well. You know, sometimes we'll have a singing competition or a disco dance competition. Uh, you know, it's it's a part of the entertainment, so it can kind of keep the show flowing, in essence. As we're discussing, it's an unusual profession. Uh, certainly, it's not one that my careers officer at school mentioned. So how did you get started with this? How did you get into it? Having studied for a degree in performing arts, I thought, oh, I really want to be an actor, really want to be an actor. And I remember... Hearing on the radio when I was working in this factory during my days at university, trying to earn a bit of money, that they were looking for contestants on blind dates. I thought, uh -huh. great. So I went to the auditions and then managed to get on the show, then managed to get picked. I mean, it was just great. I saw a different side of TV. I saw how it was made from a contestant's point of view. And I saw a chap, and I I will name check him because I think he's a god in the name of uh, warm-up, is Ted Robbins. I saw Ted Robbins mm. do his – he had the audience in the palm of his hands. He had them roaring with laughter. He got their attention straight away. And I kind of looked forward to the parts where there was a record break and him coming on, and I thought to myself, I would love to do what he does. Mm. And subsequently, I was one of the annoying guys that badgered the producers after the show was transmitted to say, oh, please give me a job. I want, I want a big break in TV. Fortunately, I did and then became a junior researcher on Blind Date, worked on that for three series, then went to the BBC. But the dream was always to try and become a warm-up guy. So I would badger every production manager to say, look, just give me a chance. Just give oh. me 10, 15 minutes. And then the opportunity arose where a production manager said, right, okay, I've had a word with the, the producer. We're going to give you a go. But, you know, just to let you know that if you don't cut the mustard, 
uh, you won't be back tomorrow. So, um, I mean, that was a big weight on my shoulders. But I just remember thinking to myself, right, I've got to do this. I've got to get every joke book at Waterstones. So I did, sat down, created some kind of comedic list of gags, very much dad joke gags, and kind of got away with it. And then I then got booked because another warm-up guy, uh, Andy Collins, who's another legend in the industry of warm-up, he couldn't do some certain gigs, so I kind of filled in for him. Uh, So I kind of served my apprenticeship for a few years and then started becoming kind of the number one pick rather than just the reserve. And I've not looked back since. I mean, I've done, it'll be my 18th year on Strictly Come Dancing, and they were one of the first shows to kind of give me give me a trial so to speak and um probably one of the longest serving people actually that actually works on the show whether that be warm-up or production so it's great and i'm very very lucky to have worked on some of the biggest shows i'm very humble about where i am today Hmm. because like they say you know the old adage you're only as good as your last gig and that really is true i mean people never forget if you're bad but they seem to take it for granted if you're good so um so over that length of time, you must have developed a certain amount of comedic muscle so that you, you can cope with any eventuality. Like if somebody comes back late from the loo, if if the shoot goes past midnight, you must have several lines and, and techniques to keep people happy. Also sort of manage the situation, which could turn ugly if, you know, people have got full bladders and like, you know, they're worried about missing the last train. And Well, do you know what the amount of times that shows have run over – uh, you've you've basically had to write st- write stuff for that, uh, and there's always going to be people coming in late. There's always going to be people going to the toilet when really they shouldn't do while we're recording. So I've always got some banter for that. Uh, in fact, I kind of look forward to people trying to go to the toilet during the recording, <laughs> just so I can come out with that gag. And there are certain, I mean, a certain circumstance only happened last Tuesday when there were two power cuts in a show that we were recording. So you kind of in your head, and this is where you, I don't have it written down. It's all in your head. It's kind of like a backup mode. You're like, right, okay, let's use this. Let's tell the audience now that they can't go anywhere and it's turned into what can only be described now as a hostage situation, you know. So you try and make light of the situation. But, you know, without the audience, there is no show. There is no atmosphere. So it's crucial that we can keep bums in seats, so to speak. So let's talk about the responsibilities, because obviously, you know, entertaining and energising is one of it. But what's your kind of broader responsibility with the, with the production? For, for me, you know, I have the health and safety responsibilities mm-hmm. at the beginning of the show, etc. But I really, I really want to kind of immerse myself in the show. So I would have meetings prior to it as well. It's not just a case of turning up with your backpack, mm. and a mic thrust into your hand. You've got to know exactly what's going to be happening in the show. So I will uh, first have a meeting with one of the assistant producers, and that's either over the phone or I'll meet them in person and go in there early. You are then liaise with the floor manager as well, because ultimately the floor manager is in charge of everything on the floor. Because I need to be knowledgeable about the show. I need to be knowledgeable about what's going to be happening during that, and sometimes it could be three and a half hour record. Because otherwise, if you go in there and you have no knowledge, the public aren't stupid. So I'd like to think that I'm a part of the team hmm. uh, rather than just a warm-up guy that they've hired to come in to entertain. Is that information all one way, or are you tempted sometimes to sort of go, I spotted a little bit of a flaw, or I spotted that they've missed a trick here, that like, if they do something with this round, it could be a lot funnier. Having seen so many formats, do you get involved a little bit in the development? To my detriment, I have. I've, there's certain <laughs> pilots... 
a pilot is where a channel uh, have got a production company to put on uh, it can be just one show and it's kind of a tester if you like in front of an audience hmm. and sometimes i've given feedback about it purely because i've come from a production background and i don't know sometimes it's not gone down too well only because i can see from a audience point of view what they would like to see because an audience has been my life for the last what 18 years i do tend to give a bit of feedback mm. but i think sometimes they think to themselves but what do you know about tv <laughs> and i probably are not unaware of my background in the industry but yeah there are a few things few shows that i've done pilots where i thought to myself my god i'm really not too sure whether this is ever going to be commissioned and then surprise surprise four weeks later i get booked up to do uh to do eight shows so and likewise some shows that you think are going to be an absolute winner and they never get commissioned you never really know you know what's going to work and, and what doesn't in tv i always feel with big live event shows of the kind that you've you've worked on that there's always a danger that there's a fantastic atmosphere in the studio and then when you watch it back at home it's a party you're not at as, a, as someone who's very responsible for creating that atmosphere in the room, how do you ensure that it's outward facing? How do you sh ensure that it also, you know, goes down the camera and spills out into the living room? A lot of my comedy is about it's situational comedy. You know, I make comedy about the fact that they're in the studio. I, I make jokes about the fact that they're going to be seen on camera in high definition. But I also explain to them that they are. They are setting the precedent. The audience are. The wilder the audience are, the more people at home will resonate with the, uh, and they can see the excitement of the audience. And it kind of rubs off mm. on people at home. I mean, I think if any show that I've watched, uh, The Voice, for instance, obviously that's a music talent show. And if you see the audience get up and move and groove, shaking it like a Polaroid picture, that's going to create an atmosphere with people at home. If you see people get up, and move and groove you kind of want to do it yourself to a certain extent mm. you know even on the comfort of your own lazy boy at home you know just smiling and clapping isn't enough sometimes for shows you really need to let them let uh, especially the audience a live audience let the hair down you know have fun have as much fun as you want to i think certain british audiences seem very reserved i think you really need to spoon feed them and reassure them that they can just get up and have fun clap along to the music you know get in the aisles and, and dance and twerk if you want to you know <laughs> uh, it's all about having fun and i know from a television perspective that it really kind of spurs the performers on as well if they see that audience they kind of draw energy off that audience as well but yeah i think there's a massive responsibility on the shoulders of a, a warm-up artist to make sure that crowd is buzzing uh, because it really does set that bar very, very high. And it's crucial, I think, especially with pilots, because, for example, I've heard of one instance when the warm-up person slightly got the rules wrong, and then that basically confused everybody in the room, including the commissioner who'd come to see this pilot being shot. Ouch. Alternatively, I think we've been in the same studio before, because I believe you did the pilot for rolling in it. I did, yes. And, and you were masterful, because we had this contestant called Sister Rita, who was a nun, and the way you got the crowd going, shouting at Rita, Rita, she, she won the jackpot. And I think that that moment sold the show. 
I feel obliged to kind of warm up the contestants as well. It's not just the audience. I want the contestants to feel at home. I want the uh, the contestants to feel a connection with that audience. Once you've got a connection with the audience, they know that that audience is on the side of the contestant as well. So they feel more at ease. And I think if you can do that, if you can big them up in some way, like for that pure example there, um, it just makes them more comfortable. Hmm. And, and and the more comfortable they are in front of camera, I think the better the show, really. I think I've seen you do this with the performers as well on things like X Factor, where you do a certain amount of, you know, mucking around with the stars of the show before the recording starts. Is that so that the audience can sort of see those people as, as human and doing a job? Exactly. I think people put certain celebrities on pedestals, plus what you read or listen to about celebrities, you know, you, you kind of can get a, a different impression of what they are in real life. And many of them, especially, for instance, I'll just to name drop Stephen Mulhern. When I work with Stephen, we have a lot of banter between us. I kind of take the mick out of him. He takes the mick out of me. So once again, that's part of the link. That's part of the connection from me to um, Stephen and Stephen to me and the audience, you know, and I kind of, put his mind at ease in front of an audience as well. I mean, obviously he's a true pro, you know, I mean, he's done many, many shows, but he kind of prefers it that way. He prefers to kind of like have a banter with me. We have a few jokes. I mean, he ribs me as much as I rib him. Mm -hmm. And it really does. It kind of breaks down the barriers between kind of celebrity status and an audience member, you know, because you think to yourself, he's actually human. He's just one of us. And many celebrities as well, many presenters, which I actively encourage as well, will actually come out during my warm-up to say hello to the audience. And that's another way of kind of breaking down that wall. And uh, Bradley Walsh being a prime example, I've worked with him for many, many years. And without fail, without fail, he'll always address the audience at the top, come out and say hello. And then during the show, without fail, he'll come amongst the audience. Oh, right. He'll come amongst them. He'll sign autographs. He'll give someone a cuddle. I mean, everyone loves Bradley Walsh. And it really is, you never really see that too much. You know, I think many celebrities kind of or certain celebrities, should I say, not many, kind of like to keep a distance. They like to do their job and then go home. When you find celebrities that really like to engage with their audience, I think that's something special. Because don't forget, that audience is, has put you where you are today, and you should never forget that. I, I could name quite a few, but I would say the person who engages the audience the most, I would say without doubt, is Bradley Walsh. He's a, just a true pro. And of course, he used to be a warm-up guy himself. So I've learned a lot from Brad, as, as I call it. <laughs> so I've had moments of panic in the control room as a producer where we go, oh, shit, this has happened. Send the warm-up artist in because, you know, we've got to do this, that and the other. Can you think of uh, examples you're prepared to share with us? Yeah, I, I've got a story which, God bless him, is to do with Bruce Forsyth. I honestly never thought in my lifetime I would ever be working with Bruce Forsyth because, of course... As, as you probably did, you know, you watched him and admired him on TV. Just a legend that is Bruce Forsyth. And on one particular occasion on Strictly, it was the Christmas show. And for the first time ever, we had a draw. And we didn't really know what to do because right? it was, we, we, we didn't work out, you know, or, or should I say, 
the show hadn't really worked out what we would do when there would be a draw. So Bruce came out, did a little bit of his tap dance routine, etc. Because <laughs> when Bruce was out, I don't do anything. And then it got to a stage where Bruce had run out of material and he literally, he, he just, just grabbed my jacket and went, get out there, son, get out there. <laughs> and I kind of felt propelled onto stage there to do some more comedy. But, you know, Bruce, bless him. I, I looked at him and he looked at me and he just looked beaten. And he just thought to himself, <laughs> I can't do anything. It's over to you, kid. <laughs> he was the Obi Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi to my Luke Skywalker. He really, really was. And even in his 80s, early 80s, he was still doing his little routine there. He would still get the crowd laughing. And, you know, you just learn a lot from that. But to be literally, you know, to grabbing my jacket to throw me on stage, I'll, I'll never forget. So what's so special about Strictly? Because you've been on that show uh, a long time. For me, it's special because it was such a big show and it was such a big risk for them to give a rookie a chance. Um that I do feel a great deal of loyalty towards the show. Um, it's won plenty of NTAs and, and BAFTAs, and I'd like to think I've played a tiny little part in the success of the show, but also the fact that it is such a prestigious show as well. I mean, I've, I worked on it when, in the viewing figures, it was trailing behind the X Factor, and I remember speaking to the producers because they were thinking to themselves, but what can we do? You know, they're, they're looking at every part of the show to see where we can improve uh, viewing figures. And I remember sitting down and, and talking to them and giving them ideas of what I think could help, you know, with regards to the little breaks. I could go on for the little breaks and do a little something or giveaways, a bit of trivia. We could go and speak and have a little chat or, or Q&A with the, um, the judges there just so it types up that audience plus those people then can go home on the socials and say what a great day i've had and to make the atmosphere in the studio that much bigger hmm. so hopefully that gets portrayed when it gets televised as well so it's all these little bits and i'm trying to always do my best to try and improve on what i did the, the year previous throw a little different adage in because of course i wear some crazy outfits throughout the six months that i'm not working on the show I'm always finding amazing, wacky outfits that I can wear when I do the show. And I gather even your clipboard is glittery. What? Do you know what? That, that's an old prop of mine. I don't <laughs> use the, the, the um, showbiz clipboard anymore. No, that was almost like a, um, a comfort blanket for me, really, holding on to that. But yeah, I did have one, but now the glitter is on my jackets. <laughs> I, I think I've got more sequins on my jackets than any professional dancer has on Strictly Come Dancing now. <laughs> David, you used to have a glitter jacket as well, as I remember. I think it was slightly holographic, which was uh, much less messy. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Dust it down. Holographic's good. I would wear a holographic tomorrow. <laughs> So we're going to do a sort of a jargon buster today in that we're going to do a phrase that I know you've used in the past to describe something, but I don't think it's something that is an accepted industry term as such, but it's a very useful phrase that maybe we can now popularize. Okay. Uh, and that phrase is showing the plumbing. Would you like to explain to the people listening what you mean by showing the plumbing? Back in the day television was a mysterious thing where we we all worked very hard um, to convince the audience that nobody was filming anything that what you saw was what was happening 
and we were we we all went to enormous lengths to make sure there were no cameras in shots and no uh, no hints that this was a constructed event that you were seeing. And I remember, I think it was TFI Friday with Chris Evans, who was one of the first people to really uh, break that barrier. So you could see the cameras on set. He would go up to the cameras and talk directly down the tube, you know, with his face really big in the in the uh, frame. He would t- talk about the camera operators by name and so on. And so I remember that, and I, I remember feeling a bit of a I don't know, shock isn't the right word, but I remember a jolt of thinking, "Gosh, is this the point where we start showing the plumbing?" So showing the plumbing is basically when you allow the viewer to see how the show is made. So I think that's the right person. I would say you could even trace that back further to when he and Gabby Roslin were on The Big Breakfast on Channel 4 because that, again, was about showing the plumbing. He is a technique he used mm. to involve people behind the scenes and things like that. Do you wonder if it's a technique that all DJs use to an extent in that people like Noel Edmonds and particularly Steve Wright, mm. he would have posse in the studio. It's a way of making things look bigger than they ought to be. Um, I've been watching James May's cooking show on, on Amazon mm. called Oh Cook, and that has all sorts of showing the plumbing techniques wrapped up. So like the elements of showing the plumbing that they have are quite extensive. So for example, they have a home economist called Nikki in a back room, <laughs> mm. and Every time he gets nervous about is he doing it right, he knocks on the door and gets her out of the out of the back room and says, "Come and look at this." And of course, there's the whole thing about involving the people behind the cameras. So there's like the, the camera people, uh, you know, he says to the, the you know the person with the mobile camera, you know, "Come and have a good shot of this while I put this casserole in the oven." Uh, he argues with the you know the Amazon executives who's turned up to flounce in for a day and flounce out to have a call with Jeff Bezos or whatever later. They've even got a reverse angle so that you can even see all the camera people, wow. all the the light gear. Um, so it's, it's blatant that this is a thing that they were always going to do. Hmm. Um, and then there's also things like, here's one we prepared earlier. <laughs> so uh, if they have cooked something and then it's meant to cook for an hour, they go, well, we can either stay here for an hour or we could pretend <laughs> that there's that we've been here for an hour by getting out the one that you've cooked earlier mm. and swapping the two dishes and nobody will ever know. <laughs> and of course, they they leave all of that in because it's a nice yeah. joke. But it's like, again, it's like yeah. showing the process. Well, I suppose we were thinking about it, actually, going back to Treasure Hunt. With Treasure Hunt, you know, you would have shots of, you know, the camera running after Annika Rice. Um Everybody knew Dave. Have I got news for you? You know, they quite often will start an episode pre-titles with a little bit of business, mm. um, you know, and sometimes that's somebody, you know, adjusting a microphone or doing a bit of dab of makeup on stage or whatever. QI, you know, bring on elves, uh, you know, particularly when they're doing science tricks and things like that. Um so what do you think it is? I mean, you know, you said that it was sort of, it's about making the show bigger. I mean, for me, I think it's about 
actually engaging the audience is actually about bringing them on side. You know, if, if television is all about trying to connect with the viewer at home uh, so they don't feel they're just watching something, but they, they're having an experience. And I suppose doing that makes people feel that they're, you know, they're in the they're in the know, they're in the story, they're in the gang. Well, surprisingly, this is actually something that YouTubers also do. Mm. So they they have a thing called a camera touch. So what that is is rather than you just starting with a, a medium shot, when I say medium shot for anybody who doesn't know, that's sort of like from chest height upwards. The person presenting, what you do is you get somebody like uh, almost touching their fingers on the top and bottom of their GoPro or whatever they're using to film, mm. and then stepping a couple of steps back and then starting to, to show, to present the item. And I think that's called a camera touch in, in their trade. Now, what is the point of that couple of extra seconds? which you could easily edit out. It's because they're trying to remind you that there isn't a cast of (laughs) 20 people behind Mm. the scenes. It's just possibly them, a GoPro, a tripod, and whatever's in their head. Mm. And it's a way of getting people to both empathise with that situation and realise that that it's it's just more personal uh, production. It's Mm. it's not a whole... Yeah, I get that, yeah television thing yeah i mean that's almost the complete opposite of a, of a moment i remember with michael palin's voyages around the world which i i loved all of them i, st- I mean i love the ones he's doing now but i remember again a moment where they got held up at an airport or a or a seaport or something and they had to kind of explain that the problem was you know the, the, he wasn't the reason why they couldn't get through and they pulled back to re- to reveal the crew, and there were thirty seven of them, <laughs> and more silver camera boxes, you know, that you've you've ever seen in your life. And you thought, okay, so when Michael just you know hops on a tanker, you know, gets a lift, you know, runs down a street or whatever, this is, of course I should know that this is the entourage that's going with him. But I, over all these years, I've just somehow, even though I know, I've somehow just, you know, forgotten it because it's never been, it's never been shown. There's a tradition in US game shows for if things ever went wrong, they almost always left it in. And I think that was a combination of factors. I mean, I think partly it was because of just studio time was expensive. Mm. Partly it was because I think sometimes people were drunk enough that they just didn't really care. Uh, <laughs> and I think it was also a way of just being honest and fair with everybody concerned. Uh, so if, if like, say, a sign fell off a stage or whatever, then they would just roll with it and just laugh about it. Whereas 80 to 90% of the time in the UK, we would have done what's called a stop tape. We'd have stopped the tape, rewound it, and stuck the sign back on with yeah, tape, and then gone, okay, we're good to go and start up again. Um, there was one producer particularly uh, called Glenn Hugill, who I know well, and um, we should try and get on the show sometime. When he was uh, running Deal or No Deal, our version of that show here, um, if anything weird happened, he would absolutely keep it, keep the cameras running and also put all of the process of what happened in the instant is still in the show. 
So, for example, there was an, an incident where uh, somebody opened a box and there was no money amount in it whatsoever. Uh, and and so Noel goes, oh, that's a bit weird. What do we do now then? And then like, all, all of the subsequent conversations of like the adjudicator coming on and Noel trying to sort of work out, well, how do we go from here? And how do we... Uh, and although the, he did a pickup in terms of like properly restarted the show again, mm. they didn't cut out that middle bit. And, and mm. it, it was just his style of, of again, saying that incidents happen and... Uh, I suppose it's a way of, of cutting down the conspiracy theorists <laughs> as well, in terms of like thinking, well, you know, oh, something fishy happened there. But the, well, if you show what really happened, then you you miss all of that out. Yeah, yeah, you might be right. Yeah, I mean, they did similar kind of thing on um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Um, there's a clip that I use when I'm lecturing sometimes of. Jeremy Clarkson saying something was um, the right answer and it wasn't. So he said, and that is the right answer. And and then, of course, it comes up with a da-dong and it was the, he got it wrong. And it was very funny and it was very Clarkson. So they just left it in. And, you know, it, 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 was, it was in the first series that he did. And, and again, I think it was that kind of ringing the changes. It's saying, mm. you know, this is not Chris Tarrant anymore, you know. This is a guy who makes a living being a bit of a clumsy idiot um, <laughs> in the chair. <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, I've, I've shown it at some festivals and things, and it always gets a huge laugh. He was so certain of the answer, he didn't even bother checking with the computer Precisely. that that was the correct That's answer. That's right, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, it'd be nice to find a way of quickly showing, finishing that off somehow. Um I see, David, we are still recording, so I think this is a good example <laughs> of, of us leaving the plumbing. I mean, we were not showing the plumbing, but we were allowed to hear the plumbing. Of yeah. This show. Yeah. Okay, you can hear the squeaks of our wrenches as we try and desperately find an ending to this item. I, well, there you go. There we go. I think we'll end it there. Right. And now let's get back to our special guest, warm-up artist Stuart Holdham. Let's talk about different genres because uh, you know you've described working on with Bradley on the chase, and uh, but you also work on talk shows and you work on talent shows and things. And presumably, you don't necessarily want an audience dancing in the aisles and you know at a pitch of frenzy uh, in the middle of the chase. So, to what extent do you uh, modify your approach in terms of what you're what you want the audience to do, and and what what is the difference between those audiences? I think, depending on the show, you've got to keep it on theme. And with quiz shows such as Beat the Chasers and The Chase, which I'm very fortunate to do, I do love working on both shows. I'm a big quizzer. I'm a massive quizzer. So for me, I think to myself, right, so I do check with the, with the quiz guys and girls that write the questions. And so I do a quiz with the audience. So we're keeping it on topic, keeping it on theme. So we get to a stage where, especially on Beat the Chasers, we have we uh, I divide the audience off uh, up into three blocks, and we take on the chasers. So the audience actually get to take on all of our chasers as well. So every break, they're looking forward to seeing whether they can beat them. And in all the shows, only two shows in God knows 
how many times we've recorded Beat the Chasers. The audience had beaten the Chasers. And when they did, you've never heard <laughs> a roar like it from the audience. The roof lifted off. And I would, I'd hate to say this, but probably louder than uh, than any other audience we've ever heard in there because it meant a lot to them because they can go home and say, do you know what? I, we beat the Chasers. Hmm. It's great. It's an opportunity once again for the Chasers to meet the public, to meet the audience. I never want people to feel detached. I think it's gr great to have that connection and it just makes for a better show, well, in my opinion anyway. Given that you know, we know how good you are, we know how funny you are, are you ever in danger of upstaging the acts? Well, when you, when you say funny, I mean, I'd like to say <laughs> I'm, I'm the best in my price range. Uh, I'll go as far as that. But, um, but no, do you know what? I would, yeah, there is always a worry. I mean, there, I can't mention someone's name, but there is one particular presenter that, that doesn't want to use me because of, of that exact example you've given. And, and I find that a compliment, really, because I think it means that I'm doing my job and I'm doing my job well. But no, I think I've, there's been a couple of times where I've written a gag and I've and I've delivered a gag and it was in the script, but I wasn't to know that. So you're never to blame for that. It's just, you know, mm. I suppose comedic minds think alike. But no, I've never been in the situation where the talent or the presenter has asked me to, to kind of reel it in a little bit. Mm. You know, I think... I think I work with them and I compliment them, I would hope, as well. Two-sided question. Is it a job that you'd recommend other people do? Is it well paid? But also, is it quite tough being out to these really long recordings night after night after night? I, can, I couldn't believe, or I still can't believe now, that I get paid to entertain people and, and to make people laugh. I mean, that because hearing people laugh is the biggest buzz, is, is the best natural high I think anybody could have. So... I would recommend it if you can take the, the highs and the lows, because there's going to be recordings which have been six and a half hours. Yeah. And you'll think to yourself, right, I just cannot think of any more gags. I've exhausted the Stuart Holden book of dad jokes, but you've still got to go with it. Plus, there's going to be, um, there's going to be times where you're going to be a warm up on a show and the audience aren't going to get that connection with you. And you can't simply walk off and think to yourself, okay, fair enough. You have to stick to it. I think it's quite male um, dominated at the moment, which you shouldn't be. There's definitely space for females in the industry because it, people do say warm up guy and it, and it isn't, it's a warm up artist. And I'd love to, to see a girl do it. I'd love to be able to kind of maybe mentor someone that wants to get into the industry because it is fun. You get to meet not only some great celebrities, you get to work on some amazing shows, but ultimately for me, you get to meet some great people and that audience. You know, the general public are great and you get to meet some regulars as well. There are many people that come to almost every TV show recording there is out there. And also there's a lot of people that don't realise that the tickets are free. <laughs> you know, that's one thing. You know, you, they can grab their tickets from, uh, you know, there's three main companies that do the tickets. But do you know what? It's free entertainment and you actually have an amazing night. And it's not cost you a penny. Except in Germany. They do charge you in Germany. Do they really? I think that's partly to cover some like, snacks and food and things that you get with it. But Well, I never. Well, they're missing out. Whereas in South Africa, they pay you to come. So well, uh... In America, they do as well. So uh, <laughs> I've done a few American shows out in Ireland, in Dublin, and um, and they pay, they pay the audience. And I'm like, 
they said, oh, we need to pay the audience because we need to guarantee that they're going to be kind of upbeat. And I said, well, that's my job. That's what you're paying me to do. <laughs> Just get the public in and save it. Save your hundred quid. Stick your hundred quid in your pocket or give me the hundred quid. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, Americans, I'm not, I, I don't know what it is uh, with American audiences, but most of them are, are paid. Oh, well, I believe it's because what happens is that uh, the people who are available mid-afternoon in Los Angeles area are out-of-work actors. So they tend to sort of just go, well, hey, if I can get $30, $40 to turn up and watch this show, then then great. Somebody who I know who had their format out in the States said that in the downtime, they had to give away like washing machines and things like that to, to keep these sort of bored actors energized because they they weren't really performing. They were just there to sort of collect a, a very small paycheck. <laughs> well, I've never been in a situation where we're giving away white goods. So um, <laughs> but there's something there. I mean, I'll, I'll have a word with the people from Big Brother. Maybe <laughs> maybe that's something that we could, we can do in the commercial breaks. But no, God forbid... I bore an audience that much. I'm having to offer them uh, a dishwasher. So, favourite child question. What is your favourite show that you work on? Do you know what? I knew you'd ask me this. <laughs> um, I mean, there are, I mean, there's fun shows. I mean, I mean, I do love Ireland and I do get to go over to um, uh, the villa over there. So that's always quite fun. But Oh, gosh, I would have to say, and I've said this too many times, and I sound like a broken record, but I think it's probably down to the fact that I've worked on it for um, for 18 years is, is strictly. And can I can I borrow my Latin? No, I can't. You know, <laughs> even though I claim to be two times disco dance champion of Watford 96, 97, when I do my warm up, I can't dance for toffee. I saw a video of, on YouTube of you um, doing a dance for The Greatest Dancer, auditioning yeah. for The Greatest Dancer. It was enough to make a glass eye cry. And, uh, <laughs> and there's no way you could tell me that you're impressed by those moves. I mean, literally. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. My milkshake does not bring the boys to the yard. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so just tell us a little bit about your, your other work, because I know this is warm-up artist is your central thing and your big passion but you've done things for like Soccer Aid, for example. Yes, a Soccer Aid, which is great. I love charitable events. I'm doing a big charity event in March for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And part of that, I promised them that every show that I work on, I'm going to get some memorabilia, which we can then auction off. So that gives me a purpose throughout the year to make sure that I can make a difference for that charity. Soccer Aid is superb. I'm very, very fortunate to have done the Queen's platinum jubilee outside buckingham palace uh -huh. uh, and i did do the, the king's coronation at windsor castle as well as i was the warm up act for that and, and also not forget of course in hyde park uh when the wedding of the duke and duchess of cambridge uh william and kate so i was in front of the biggest screens in the world apparently in uh in hyde park that's quite amazing. <laughs> yeah, they are. And they're great because they're the moments that you think to yourself, you do pinch yourself and think to yourself, God, this is a guy from Watford who had worked in a chemical factory for four years through university when I was lifting up, picking up all those rusty bits of metal while putting them in, in acid to get the rust off. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't be doing this for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, that's what grounds you and makes you think to yourself, wow. This is surreal, and it is surreal. Mm. And, um, you know, like I said, I don't take what I do for granted. I'm, I'm very, very honoured and pleased and humble about 
having the, the job that I have. Is that on your business card, uh, Stuart Holden, warm-up artist for the king? Uh, no, no, I don't know what. No, it's not. I did meet him, and uh, he did comment about my suit because I was wearing a Union Jack suit, and I did say, "Listen, I'll just give you the name of my tailor." And uh, he never came back to that information for some reason. <laughs> so, Stuart, we're going to come back to you a little bit later in the show to talk about your item that you are going to show and tell us about. But for now, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So in the old days of television, things were very simple. You'd just turn on your television, choose one of the four channels available, if you had that many, and you'd tune in on that channel at the same time every week to watch your show. Well, now things are rather more difficult, aren't they, Justin? They are, and also quite interesting. So as we know, Big Brother is about to relaunch again, um, yet again on another channel. So we've seen it on Channel 4, we've seen it on Channel 5, and now we're going to see it on ITV. But not just any old ITV. So when it launches, this is a marketing strategy from ITV, it's going to launch simultaneously on ITV1, ITV2, and ITVX. And that got me thinking about, you know, instances where more than one channel has been used to, to make a show. So we talked, I, th- I know we've talked previously about the magic flute in Switzerland where uh, it was broadcast on more than one channel. So the main production was live on the equivalent of BBC One, but they had cameras all over the backstage and they showed backstage action also live on another channel as well. So you could flick between the two. But Would that be called showing the plumbing, Justin? <laughs> I suppose... <laughs> I suppose that's exactly what it is. It's showing the we don't we don't just throw this show together, folks. No, yeah. you're quite right. That is just. <laughs> but um, there have been other examples of this. Um, one that I remember from a few years ago, I think it was 2015. I think it was was a was in Belgium. So the two largest Flemish Belgian channels, In and VTM, and they both had <clears throat> very popular presenters. What they did was they created a show called the called Channel versus Channel. Um, I think it was also called The Dare. And the idea was that viewers sent in challenges, uh, mental and physical challenges, which both of them had to compete with each other to do and to try and win. However, because they were from two different networks, the series alternated between the two channels. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so one week it was on one channel and the next week it was on the other channel. Was it a case of winner stays on or did they strictly <laughs> alternate? No, they strictly alternated. Um, that would have been quite fun. <laughs> I think that's a better idea, actually. But, you know, I think it sort of says something about confidence. I mean, I'd actually love to see that here. I think that would be really fun. Because, we, you know, we, we see, you know, football and, you know, sports moves from channel to channel according to who's, you know, bought the franchise for it, um, bought the license for it. So I can see definitely, you know, the opportunity for some kind of cross-fertilisation. I suppose there's, there's milder versions of that that happens with things like, say, Strictly Come Dancing, where they have the main show on BBC One and then they yeah. have the It Takes Two companion show on, on BBC Two suppose there are opportunities for them to use BBC3 and BBC4 for other things as well. Uh, but it's going to be interesting. To, well, 
in the early days of of Big Brother, of course, in order to have things like watching the live stream, you would have to like have uh, was it on your cable boxes and things like that? You'd have to sort of press one of those sort of coloured buttons to bring that up. I, I think, or you'd have to go onto the website, and look at the feed there, which they I think in some years they mm. got people to pay for. But now <laughs> that they have the facility in this modern era broadband of, of ITVX, then all of that's going to be far more simple. Yeah. Well, I think the best example of it that I came across was in, um, I was in South Africa. I was working uh, with a company called Rapid Blue, who specialise in bringing the big formats to Africa, the big international formats. They bought a show called So You Think You Can Dance, and they sold it in South Africa and in Nigeria. Um, so a lot of what they did to manage the costs was to um, basically make the show for two countries or even three countries, sometimes Zimbabwe as well, uh, all in one. But what's different in South Africa is that you generally have to, or in, in a lot of countries in Africa, you have to buy the slot. So you don't just um, get commission to make the show. You also have to pay for the slot. Uh, and once you pay for the slot, it's yours. So when sounds when so you think you can dance went out in Nigeria, it got a hundred percent share of the audience. Right. It achieved that because they bought all the slots. <laughs> the slots. <laughs> so whatever channel you were watching, <laughs> like, like, hang on, darling, I'll just see what's on the other channel. But- is, is this is this TV broken? What that, what this is trying to say? What what is going on with my remote? <laughs> so I <laughs> I thought that was just amazing. <laughs> how, how I wonder how many channels that was. That must have been a well, all the was it must have been all the main channels. Yeah, it was all the main yeah. channels. But I, I think you could still call it a hundred percent share. Um. <laughs> well, it probably was 100% share of terrestrial. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that truly is multi channel. I can't really beat that. Can't beat that. Can't, but... can't really beat 100%. <laughs> so it's show and tell time, and we're back with warm up artist Stuart Holland. And Stuart, I can see that you're wearing a fez, so please explain. It's a bit ill-fitting. You have to be careful because uh, I've not had my uh, monthly haircut. But, yeah, it's a fez because I think my comedy uh, inspiration or the comedy legend that I'd like to model myself on in in a tiny way would be Tommy Cooper. I remember as a very, very young child watching Tommy Cooper because my dad was a huge fan. And I just loved the way he delivered his comedy the way he did it, even when he got things on purposely wrong, I would think to myself, well, if I got something wrong, I would try and laugh it off and style it off exactly the way Tommy Cooper did. And and I just think he's untouchable. You know, there's a lot of people or comedians of today, and you can see that Tommy Cooper has been a massive inspiration in how they do their, their comedy. Uh, and I can still watch Tommy Cooper clips now even if it's the 20th time, and I will laugh as hard as I did the first time round. <laughs> I mean, with Tommy Cooper, a lot of the humour is he's got himself into a situation as, and how is he going to get himself out of it? And you're kind of with him, but there's also some tension in the air. 
and it feels like there's a little bit of that to being a warm-up artist as well. Yeah, well, there is, because you never know how long a record's going to take. So even if you speak to the floor manager and and he says, right, okay, this is going to be a 10-minute reset, and it turns out to be a 20-minute reset, you know, you have to kind of laugh along with it. If it's a long record, there are certain gags, you know, you would, you would say, you know, because I'm sporting a beard now, so, you know, you, you would say to him, God, I was clean shaven when we started this. You know, I hope you finished soon. I've got the baby in the car. You know, I've got the window down. I'm not irresponsible. <laughs> this guy over here, this bald guy, he had a full head of hair when we started the show. So what you're doing, you're just trying to humor them uh, because you know what they're thinking. Or if they're too cold, you know, I think especially if they're too cold because there are certain presenters that love it ice cold because they sweat so much. You know, and there'll be a person in the front row. Say, you know, I, you know, that guy went to the toilet. He's so cold, a slush puppy came out. So what you're doing, you're just humoring them because you know they feel cold. You know they feel hot. They're sweating like a glass blower's ass crack, which is a line that I will never forget. Um, but, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. But I, from what I take from Tommy Cooper is his facial expressions. Hmm. You know, when certain things happen, you sometimes you don't even need to say a word. You just use a facial expression and you can get the audience laughing. And that's what I try and incorporate in my routine, courtesy of the great, the late, great Tommy Cooper. It doesn't need to be said. It just needs to be visual. <laughs> well, just like that, we've run out of time, unfortunately. But uh, Stuart Holden, thanks so much uh, indeed for coming on TV Show and Tell. I've actually thoroughly enjoyed myself. I was actually more nervous about doing this than I was a warm-up. But uh, I feel like I could talk to you guys forever. But that, I you know, thoroughly enjoyed it. Jolly good, great. excellent. Good to have you. And now it's time when Justin and I put ourselves under the development cosh as we try and come up with a four-minute format where we devise some kind of entertainment or factual entertainment show in that length of time. So, Justin, you know what the drill is. I have six pieces of paper in front of me. Which one would you like to pick? I'm going to pick number six, please, Bob. Number six. It actually didn't choose two for once. <laughs> okay. Uh, this one says the word bully. 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 Mm. So that is our random stimulus by which we have to devise our show. And our four minutes starts now. Right. So we're going to try to raise all mentions of bullseye from our head. <laughs> <laughs> That's the tricky thing here. Bully. Okay. Well, what are the meanings of bully? Obviously, it could be someone who's very mean to somebody else. It's a term for beef. But it also means, like, good for you, doesn't it? Bully for you. Bully like for it's you. A, That's it's a good, good Yeah. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, obviously there could be some kind of not particularly nice revenge format where people who are bullied in their past well, th- get revenge. there was one. It was called Revenge of the Nerds. Oh. It was, a, it was a prank show where basically nerds who were bullied as, as kids used their now useful scientific knowledge um, to play prank revenges on the people that bullied them. Right. So, um, scarily... <laughs> That what's been done. Um, yeah, it's hard because you don't want to kind of go down too dark a route in the entertainment world with this. I mean, there definitely have been sort of intervention shows in the Netherlands where, you know, celebrities have come along to school and kind of confronted somebody's bully ah. and sat down with them, you know, for a conversation about, you know, what it means and 
whatever, which is usually led to the bully bursting into tears and telling them, you know, what their problems are and, mm. you know, achieving some kind of resolution. Right. Um, but in terms of entertainment, an entertainment show called Bully. So if it was more for the positive aspect of Bully for you, yeah. then um, what could that mean? It means obviously you've more power to you, it means. So what could what could you be doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. Well, it's going to be, have to be something to do with that, or something to do with beef, <laughs> like <laughs> or bulldogs. Or oh, bulldogs, <laughs> yes. Okay, it could be a it could be a bulldog competition. That's true. Um, As in terms of British bulldog, the the playground game that we, where people run against each other. Well, actually, that's not a terrible idea. Yeah, that's not a terrible idea. Um, I can't get what I can't get out of my head was one of my very first jobs in television was was working in in daytime, and I remember sitting in the green room thinking, I am doing an item on people who look like their dogs, and what the hell happened to my career? <laughs> what <laughs> what am I doing? How and they did. I mean, they really did look like their dogs, and one of them looked very like their bulldog, which is what I stuck in my brain. <laughs> Um, right. Yes. Okay. British bulldogs. So how do, how does British bulldogs work? I think it's basically a pretty violent game where one person tries to sort of run through a line fortified by the other people on the other side. I'm sure I played this at school at some point. But um... yeah, uh, but that I mean I think that that could be sort of a prototype for a game in that like they're trying to protect something. So let's say that uh, they've got a certain amount of time to try and build up a defence against somebody coming to go and try and destroy the prize or whatever on top of a plinth that's behind them. Um, and, and it would be called Bully for You, I guess. <laughs> okay, how about it's Bull E, right? Bull dash E. Um, and it's a, it's a bullfight with an electric bull. <laughs> this would go down great in Spain. Well, you, perhaps not with the electric part of it, but um, uh, you know, maybe this is a completely sort of yeah, uh, a, a bull robot called Bull E, and the the most famous uh, you know matadors of the day take on Bull E in a knockout competition. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, time's up. So, <laughs> thank God. So, thank God thank for God that. For that. <laughs> <laughs> And and when we say we, we come up with a format, <laughs> I, I I didn't say we'd come up with a good format. No, I, um, I think what this proves is that development <laughs> is difficult and time consuming, <laughs> and uh, four minutes is not enough sometimes. Talking about bulls, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but there was definitely a Spanish kids show. I think was it called Peque Pri or something like that, which in one round involved a small bull running around the studio. Right. That was genuinely one of the rounds of the show. Wow. Yeah. There we go. So it takes everything. There we go. That's that's what we've come up with. (laughs) Bull E, the game show with the uh, electrified AI uh, robot bull. So (laughs) on that bombshell, it's time to wrap up the show. If you want to contact us to complain about what we've just done, (laughs) then feel free. It's a contact at tvshowandtell.com or you can tweet us on X uh, at tvshowpodcast. Uh, until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggy. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>